to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is filmmaker Mikey Murray. Welcome to the show. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. Now, we're here to talk about two things, your new movie, Mindset, and three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. Is that correct? Is that why you're here? That is, uh, well, I believe that's why I'm here, and that's what I'm all prepped for, so <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> good, good. Well, let's start off with your film, Mindset, then. Um just to give people the basic understanding of what it is, do you want to give us a brief synopsis as to as to what mindset is all about? Yes, mindset is about a, a, a failed actress called Lucy who is living in a relationship with her screenwriter boyfriend. Uh, they live in a house in Lincoln, um, and they have a bit of a dysfunctional relationship. Right. Um, to the point where Lucy decides that she thinks she might want to have an affair with someone else from work. Oh. And what genre is that? It's a comedy drama. Okay. Um, it's kind of a throwback to a 60s new wave British film, kitchen okay. sink kind of style, uh, with a modern twist, I guess. Okay. Um, did you, do you, you wrote and directed this, yeah? I wrote, directed, and produced. And yeah. produced. But So thinking of thinking as you the writer and director then, from a writing point of view, what was the, uh, what was the kernel of an idea that sort of kick-started off this film that we now see today? Okay, so there were, well, there was two things. Like I, I knew I needed to write something uh, that was really low budget because I, you know, I'd been skirting around the industry for a while trying to get a feature made uh, on a higher budget. Um, I'd won sort of festival awards with shorts, and I won a Scottish Baftas uh, for best first time writer. Mm. Um, and so there was a bit of interest in projects. I'd been working with production companies, but I just couldn't get anything, you know. Greenlit, basically, you know, it's it's that age-old thing. You can't get a film made until you've got a film made, as it were. So I thought, right, well, you know what? I've been spending too much time trying to get these other projects made. I just need to write something that I can make myself on the budget that I have and for the resources that I have. Mm. So <clears throat> that's what I did. I, I kind of set out to write the story that, you know, could be done with what I had. And the resources I had were my house. Um, and a few other locations around about where I live. Um, a little bit of money, which I, I felt I could raise about 20000 to mm. shoot it with, um, just through friends and family and the way that I decided to do it, which was that I was going to break it into 100 shares, sell 50 of those to investors, give the other 50 to cast and crew. Um, so I'd worked out all that stuff first. So then the script just kind of, then I had to come up with an idea. Um, and the idea... I'd kind of had an idea in my mind about uh, a screenwriter and actor who were living together um, in a really dysfunctional relationship. I didn't know where I was going to take that yet. Um, thematically, I wanted to write something about how disillusioned I felt after Brexit um, and how, you know, just society now is generally forcing us into our households and making us not want to go outside because we're afraid of what's out there in a sense. So um, that started to create this notion of, right, well, here's this actor who's no longer acting and she is working in a, an office job to make ends meet. And uh, she's living with a screenwriter who hasn't managed to get anything made or written potentially for a long time. Yeah. Um, so it was not too dissimilar to my life, <laughs> uh, shall we say, but it's not, I mean, it's not a 
an autobiographical film. It's not about me. It's it's about elements of me. It's about elements of things that piss me off. It's about elements of other people's lives that I've spoken to. So yeah, but when I'm writing, I usually start with theme. I usually start with um, what am I, what am I pissed off about at the mm. moment. Um, so and that usually I form the ending of my film and the thing that I want to say before I start anything else. Okay. I, I know that a lot of writers don't work that way. Most writers work from concept or from character, but I work from theme. Um, I, I find that's the easiest and most economical way for me to write screenplays. So I can go either or. I can. I can. I like things to emerge and be surprised. But equally, if I'm pissed off or angry about something, I can really sort of drive at that one, and and it can be quite productive that way because you kind of know what you're trying to what you're trying to look for as opposed to looking for it <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um now given you've mentioned low budget a few times um and you, and you put a figure on it people might be surprised to see names like jason isaacs and steve Oram, who's been on the podcast himself before when he did his film ah which is amazing by the way that it film's is nuts. it is indeed yeah. so from from a kind of low budget filmmaker point of view how do you get a film like this into hand into those type of people's hands Okay, so well, uh, I'd met Steve uh, because of Ah, as mm. it happens. Um, I noticed that his production company was called Lincoln Studios, and I was quite interested by that because I'd just moved to Lincoln, and I thought, is he in Lincoln or what's the crack? So I looked at his website, and it's clearly just this piss take about a, uh, that's got this fake character who owns a sunbed parlor, um, but he's also breaking out into the movies and it's kind of like Steve's alter ego. Basically. Right. So I just dropped him an email and said, you know, what's the crack? Why have you, like, why did you call it Lincoln Studios? Are you connected to Lincoln and that? And he, he responded and was like, no, no, I just thought it was a bit of a gag. I thought Lincoln was a sort of everyman town. I liked the, uh, the idea of it. And I was like, cool, would you like to come up and speak to our students? Because uh, I run a British film night and I'll show uh, sightseers. Why don't you come up and talk to them about making a sightseers? So he did. Um, and then I found out that he was just in the, putting the finishing touches on Ah at the time. So I also run a film festival called Indie Links in Lincoln, which is all about sort of uh, showing real proper indie films to our audience here because we don't get a lot of that in Lincoln. So mm. I, I started this festival. So I said to Steve, you know, why don't we show Ah as a as a special event on a Friday night, and you can come up and talk. And he was like, yeah, I'll do that. So just through sort of bringing them in to speak to students, and then I brought them in again to speak to our students, and we start to kind of build a build a rapport, I guess. Um, uh, and then he was speaking at our festival. I had another actress who's Ailish Cahill, who's the lead in my film. They did an actors panel together where they were just discussing how you how how to get them interested in your projects, basically. And they mm. were saying like it's all about the script. We like a really good script. If we know it's written for us and, you know, it's kind of, uh, and it's good, there's chances are we want to do it, you know? So I think I was the only person in the room who was listening, um, <laughs> despite the fact that I was uh, hosting the talk. Um, and so I just went off and thought, right, this script that I'm about to embark on, I'm going to write it for them. So uh, I wrote it for them. I didn't tell them I was writing it for them. I finished it and I sent it to Stephen Ailish and, and said, you know, do you want to read the script I've written just to see what you think about it? And they both came back and said, this is great. What are you doing with it? And I was like, I'm making it in the summer with both of you. 
So, and they were like, yeah, cool. And Steve was like, yeah, we'll get in touch with my agent. Uh, I think I'm quite busy in the summer, but uh, get in touch with my agent. I'm, I'm up for it if, if I'm free, basically. And uh, I spoke to his agent and she said, you know, I can give you a week. I can give you a week. And I was like, oh, that might be tight. But we worked at our schedule. Um, I had Ailish for 11 days. I had Steve for seven and we shot it in 11 days. So, Blimey, O'Reilly, that's aggressive. Yeah, it was. And, and, and you know, the, the one we only had one day where we went over the sort of allotted time. Yeah. Um, and we were working, you know, quite sustainably. So we were shooting during the day with mostly daylight. Um, the, we did have lights. We were sort of enhancing it here and there. But um, it was mostly shot during daylight in June. So it was the best time of year to be filming for mm. nat- natural light. So. What would what would be um, lessons learned that you, you from from that kind of aggressive shoot that you could pass on to someone who's sort of got a similar challenge ahead of them? What would be some advice you could pass on? I mean, you just have to be scheduled within an inch of your life. You know, I mean, I, right. uh, my co-producer uh, Daz, like we sat down together and really scheduled the hell out of the script. You know, mm. we kind of got the script and. I, I worked out, yes, it could be done in 11 days, but it, it was intricate. I mean, we didn't shoot sequentially. Uh, I know that most people don't, but we simply couldn't do it sequentially because we had our sort of co-star, Peter Bancoli, as well. We only had him for four days, so we had to do all of his stuff in mm. the first four days. Um, and then, then we had one day where he and Steve had to cross over because they had a couple of scenes together. Um, so that was our fourth day. Then Peter was out of the picture. We didn't have him anymore. Um, and then we were working with Steve for the next six days with Ailish. And then the, the last sort of uh, three days, we just had Ailish on our own. And we did all the stuff because uh, she's the lead. There's quite a lot of yeah, things yeah, that yeah. she does in the script where she's by herself. So, um, so yeah, um, and scheduling is everything, basically. What do you remember being the most sort of challenge on paper what was the most challenging sort of scene or sequence and in a sense of what gave you the greatest sort of pleasure having having done it also what was the hardest but what was what was perceived to be and then when you got over that hump as it were there was i think the the hardest bit of the shoot was just getting started with it i mean like i mean i've made a few films now mostly shorts and it's always that first day is getting through that first day and realizing that you aren't going to get that much. And I mean, and again, going back to the scheduling thing, you always want to schedule your easiest day as your first day okay. and, not get, and not give yourself too much to achieve on that first day. Right, um, because, because it does take the whole crew a bit of time to get into the swing of like what's expected of them. Mm. Like it, it's, a, I mean, it's the same if you start a new job, right? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like for, those, for that first week, you're just all at sea and it's the same on a shoot. Like the first day you're, everyone's kind of looking at each other going, right, well, how is this going to work? And it takes to maybe day two or day three before you start working like a family and, mm. you know, getting it together. Um, in terms of the the most pleasing moment of the shoot for me, uh, there's a scene in the film where Steve Orham and Ailish Cahill dance together. Um, and it's kind of like this crucial scene um, that's the beginning of the third act in a sense. Yeah. 
Um, and I had a very particular song that I thought, I mean, this is fatal. This would be another piece of advice that I would always give filmmakers <laughs> is don't have a particular song in mind when you, uh, but I did. And I played it on the set for them while they were dancing. Right. Um, and then without, uh, like, you know, I didn't have the rights to the song yet. And I checked how much it might cost me. Um, and we ended up, we did get the rights to it. And it oh, well done. Like, yeah, so it wasn't a, I mean, it was a recorded song by a Marshall Tucker band who are a relatively well-known uh, southern rock band from the US from the 70s. Right. Um, but the song I wanted to use is not that kind of famous as such. So I kind of thought I could probably go to them and make them an offer for it and they'd probably say yes, and that is what happened. So Okay. Um, but it took about a year to get the rights nailed down for it. Well, no, I mean, I, I interviewed uh, Julia DeCorno about Tatane, and she actually wrote the songs into the script. Like, yeah. Because she was basically saying to a producer that the lyrics of this song are actually helping the narrative. This isn't just, a like, this isn't just about, I like this song. It's actually yeah. doing some heavy lifting for the story. So it was kind of a, a bit of a producer's nightmare in that sense. Yeah, that's, that is a total nightmare. You know, I mean, you've always got to be willing to walk away from a song, you know, and I've always said to, you know, I teach film as well, and I always say to students, do not write specific songs into your screenplay because yeah. you're just encouraging your producer to go, we can't make this because, you know, they're going to want to have that song and it's it's going to be too expensive. You know? now, 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 going back to your point you said about your film being a throwback to kind of 60s realism and all that kind of and kitchen sink, you've you've shot this in black and white. Uh, we didn't shoot it in black and white. We shot it in color. But it is it is uh, a black and white film, yeah. It's a black and white film with color elements. Oh, okay, so I mean, I've not seen all the films. So, um, so when, I was just going to ask, what what was your conversations like with Jack Shelbourne then about sort of that? Or was was the black and white a decision after shooting it, or was it before, or was it always going to be black and white? Yeah, there is a story behind this. So, go on. I, I'm not the filmmaker who makes black and white films. I'm not that guy, basically, right? Um, because. I've always kind of thought, oh, well, it's classically art house and people do it for, uh, like, they do it to make a statement kind of thing. Um, so I'd never envisaged that it would be black and white. We shot it in colour, we edited it in colour, and we had a beautiful grade on it. Mm. Um, John Holmes is the guy who did the grade on it. He's my colleague. And then Jack shot it for colour. Mm. Um, and we were relatively happy with it. But just I had a last-minute wobble where I just kind of thought, right, well, this was always supposed to be a bit of a 60s throwback movie and it's not it's not quite got that um and i'd come at a really busy time at work so that's the it was the first time in, in like maybe six months that i'd had a like a, a real moment of time to myself where i could watch the cut and really think about it because mm. uh, i didn't cut it uh, my friend matt owen cut the film as well i don't edit my own work so um but then I just had this wobble at the last minute and I said to Jack and John and Matt, I said, I think this needs to be in black and white. And I thought John was going to take a shit because he'd done, he'd spent so much time doing this beautiful grade on it yeah, and color work. But he turned around and just went, I think you're right. He said, I think this will look a lot better. What, what was it? What in particular made you come to that conclusion? I just, it, it, it just needed it. I think the rawness of the story um, and also this notion that I wanted it to be this throwback movie. Mm. Um, and I think that it, it's more clearly a throwback in black and white. Yeah. But it also works for the performances, I think. I think you, when you see it in colour and you see it in black and white, and that's not that's no disparaging 
comment on the performances in it because the performances are phenomenal. Mm. Steve Steve Orham and Eilish Cahill are both amazing. Um, but in black and white, it really helps you focus on those performances more so, I think. It feels more... Uh, and the house feels tighter in black and white, for sure. Well, I mean, I mean, it, it does wonders, doesn't it, for production values because there's not... There's not as much to worry about, is there? I mean, no, you shot it in colour, but once you go black and white, there's there's things that just aren't going to be seen as much as. I mean, it created a couple of problems because obviously Jack had lit it for colour. Okay. Um, so when we like, there's a scene towards the end where it's it it was clearly morning when it was in colour because of the daylight that was coming in through the window. Right. Um, and when we put it in black and white, it it suddenly became less clear. Ah, okay. Uh, that it was morning, so we had to fix that with sound. So we added in a cuckoo <laughs> of, of, of a dog to know uh, to just make it clear that it was morning. You know. Well, uh, you've mentioned Matt already working on the edit. Um, what what for the what what were some of the story discoveries that you made in the edit that weren't evident when you were writing the script? Not that many. I don't know. I don't. I don't think we discovered that much about the story. I mean, because we'd shot it in eleven days, we, you know, it it was tight anyway. Right. You know? So Matt's first rough cut was an hour and forty-five. Okay. Um, and it ended up being ninety minutes. Um, so it was really just tightening up. I I can't think if we actually moved anything around. We did cut a scene that was kind of full of exposition. Um, as a screenwriter, you always write these scenes where characters yeah. get together and they explain their past and stuff. But we like we realized pretty quickly that we didn't need that scene, so uh, we cut that and we kind of turned it into a sort of short montage sequence um, instead. But, that, but, that's, uh, but that's good to know. I mean, from from screenwriters listening in, that's that's an interesting thing to learn, you know, because you 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 write, you can't help yourself sometimes that you feel like yeah. you need to have your characters explain some things. Then when you're able to watch a film, there's so much you can, so much codifying information you can take while you're watching a film that then the context of that scene where everyone does their exposition no longer matters. Yeah, exactly. So the lead character sort of explained where she was from and sort of because uh, she's American, yeah. Alice. So we can I kind of thought, well, it's a bit odd that this American's living in Lincoln, kind of thing. So maybe I need to explain this in the script so that people mm. who are reading it kind of understand. But then when you watch when you're watching your cut, you kind of go, well, it doesn't matter. People are people are smart. They'll they'll just go, cool. She's an American living in Lincoln. Yeah, well, yeah. Who cares? You know. So it's, it's a, like it's a classic screenwriter question, though, isn't it? It's like, well, I wonder why she lives it. I mean, you would want to know that just for your own for your own sort of story beats and stuff. But actually, does the film need to explain it? Because people live Americans have lived in Lincoln before. Yeah, well, absolutely, and it, it's kind of like, and she's you know, the, there's this. Just through knowing that she's a failed actor, which she kind of, I mean, that's a bit of a spoiler. You don't find that out until a bit later in the script. But And she's living with a screenwriter. He, it kind of makes sense. You know? mm. Like they've probably met on some low-budget film and or they've met at uni, you know. Exactly, just, exactly. And, and, and some of that stuff just comes out naturally in the dialogue without it needing to be signposted. You know? No, it's good to, good to hear that, good to hear. Right then, well, look, I will put links in the show notes and information about how people can see the film. And without further ado, we shall move into the second portion of this podcast, which is three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. I'll just quickly run through the the rules, as it were, for those that are listening in for the first time. Mikey has given me three movies. We're going to talk about each movie five minutes at a time. 
And at the end of five minutes, an alarm will go off to signal the end of that time, and we'll move on to the next one. You could hear that okay at your end, Mikey? I can, yeah. Super duper. Well, without further ado, let's start with the first one on your list, which is 1976's Taxi Driver. Uh, so, yeah, Taxi Driver is the film that changed everything for me. Okay, uh, I'm all ears. I'm all ears. Pretty much. Uh, so I was, I've was. i always been a film boffin since I was a very young age. My dad sort of had me watching old war movies and westerns and stuff. And I was, I mean, I, I just loved movies uh, growing up as a kid. And I didn't have any aspirations to be a filmmaker. I think maybe at that time I thought acting was the was the thing I think as a, a working class boy growing up in Dundee you're kind of like who are my role models Brian Cox is a role model he's an actor so and uh, he's from Dundee so I was kind of like maybe acting's the way I want to go um but and I was into all the classic American movies of the time uh I remember seeing The Last Crusade in the cinema in 1989 uh and that really blew my mind and I, I started buying film magazines at that time yeah so I started buying film review and I started buying Empire in about 1989 uh, just for showing my age. I was 13 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd met a few folk at high school as well who also were really into films. And uh, anything film related, I was interested in it at that point. So I was reading Empire. I was reading like about all, what all these great films are. Um, and I saw an article in there, like a really short one about Taxi Driver, which was just kind of summing up, up what it was. And I'd never seen it. Uh, but I knew, I happened to know that uh, one of my brother, my brother's five years older than me, and I used to go and meet him at his work. Um, and there was a guy at his work who was really into films, and I'd seen in his bag one day that he had the the Cinema Club. I don't know if you remember the Cinema Club VHSs. That there was like a series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so they had a series of films, and my brother had bought a few of those, um, and he had this guy at his work had Taxi Driver. And because I'd seen it in this magazine, I said to my brother, can you ask him if I can borrow it? Because I'd really like to see it. So, And it just, it destroyed me when I watched it. I mean, I was like, I was maybe 14 maybe when I watched it. Far too young to be watching it, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd seen a lot of horror films and stuff. So I'd, see, I'd seen some pretty tough content by that age. But Taxi Driver was something different. And I wasn't even sure if I liked it when I first saw it. I was just so shell-shocked by it. Um, that I couldn't even speak. My, my brother came in at the room and he was like, so what did you think of it then? And I, I was just like, I, I don't, I was speechless. I was just like, I, I don't know how to react to this movie. I don't know if I liked it. It's fucked up, man. It, it's a mental film, you know? And he was like, yeah, it is. But anyway, it became my obsession and I just kind of watched it again because I wanted to see what it was all about. Start to notice the direction of it, which is, beautiful you know you mm. start to realize this filmmaker's really manipulating me in some very like clever ways yeah 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 um, and uh, you know it just it became my obsession and it you know as a people it became my obsession to such an extent that people used to call me Travis at school. Oh, wowza. Wowza. Did you, have, so, did you go the full mohawk? I didn't go the full mohawk, but um, I just wouldn't shut up about it. I was trying to get everyone to watch it, and like loads of my mates were like, Mikey, this film's shit. Like, what, like, what are you showing us? This like, We don't get it. And, uh, but anyway, it just became my obsession. And, you know, and then De Niro became my obsession. I thought I wanted to be an actor. And so then I just started. I'd only seen a couple of films with De Niro before that. I saw The Deer Hunter when I was quite young. Um, 
which again was a bit of a mind fuck. Um, and then seen The Untouchables, which was at that point my favorite film until I saw Taxi Driver. Um, and then, yeah. What, what, do, 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 can you, I mean, it's a, it's a while ago now, but can you recall what it was that touched you so deeply then, with the, where you kind of, you knew what you, you'd had a reaction to, but you, you weren't even sure whether you liked it or not, like you said. But what do you remember yeah. about any aspects of the film that was, that, that stands out for you that, that was part I, of I, I think it was just the representation of that, like the, the masculinity of it. You know, mm. like the that that fear of loneliness. I mean, I grew up in the country, so I spent a lot of time in my life, uh, like watching films or just hanging about. By my, like, I, I was a bit. I wasn't a loner as such because I had lots of friends, but I did spend a lot of time on my own. Mm. And and it gives you lots of time to think. And then when you watch a film that's about this kind of character who's completely disassociated from from the life around them in, a, in this big city, I, it, it really touched me deeply. You know, I was kind of like, holy shit, is this, you know, is this what real loneliness is like? Mm. Um, and I was really compelled by that. that the, and, and obviously I then started to read about Paul Schrader and how he'd written it and how he'd spent time in New York and felt that loneliness. And yeah, it just really... It moved me beyond words. It was my. It was in my sort of in my second sort of film loving life, where I later in life started to get into screenwriting. Taxi Driver was the first screenplay that I read where I realised what the art of the screenplay was. And yeah, I read. It was like you can read the screenplay and it's just as beautiful as the film, and yeah. you can see how one was one became the other. It was like one of the first few times where I realised that you could be being a good writer could be. A, sc- a screenplay could be that. It doesn't just have to be a, literally a blueprint to a film. It could be evocative. Yeah, and there's that great quote from De Niro where he said, whether people watch this tomorrow doesn't matter because in 50 years they'll still be watching this movie. As this conversation is more or less proof. Yeah, and it's still my favourite film for that reason because it's the one that changed everything for me. Indeed. Well, look, it's interesting what your second choice is because in a way you could argue that this film, without this film, you don't get Taxi Driver in a way because it was part of that. This is right at the beginning of the new the new Hollywood that was the 70s that I guess Taxi Driver was one of the peaks. Um, I'm talking about Midnight Cowboy from 1969. Do you want to talk about what, what, where you, how you got to see that first time and why that touched you so much? Okay, so I saw that on, I taped it off the telly uh, I was probably about 17 at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, having watched Taxi Driver, that opened up a whole new thought about film for me. So then I started to really get deep down into figuring out what it is about 60s and 70s movies that I love so much. Um, and so therefore, I had to just take them all in. Mm. As so I'd find out about Midnight Cowboy, obviously looking back at the Oscars, it won the Oscar and stuff. I didn't really know that much about it. Um, and I went back... Uh, just through sort of becoming a bit of a cinephile, I thought that's one of the films that's definitely on my list to see. It was on telly. It was really cool because uh, the Dundee, I was, I was, I'm originally from Dundee mm. and uh, the Dundee Courier had this really uh, good reviewer who used to put stuff in the paper about what was coming on telly and they were just like really short little things, but then he did a star rating for them. And I, I mean, I never met this guy, but the star ratings always, I always agreed with them. 
every time I saw that he'd done something. Okay. So he put Midnight Cowboy was on on BBC Two one night, and there was going to be a documentary, a short documentary about it first. And so I taped it all, and he'd given it five stars, and I was like, well, I've definitely got to watch this. So, um, and the same, like, uh, I mean, it's quite similar to Taxi Driver in a lot of ways. It's set in New York. It's about uh, loneliness in New York. It's kind of got real sort of sexual themes running through it. Um, and it, it just, that kind of film, just I realised that that's the kind of shit that I wanted to be doing or that, that I was interested in. And um, and it, and it's a total gut punch, that film. you know. Mm. But funny as well. And I think that that's when I started to realise that, like, the best comedy for me comes through, like, hard drama. Mm. Um, I'm not a huge lover of kind of slapstick comedy or comedy that's just a bit sort of thin. I always like comedy that comes out of real life situation where it's potentially a bit depressing. Yeah, because in, in Midnight Cowboy, you've got such an absurd setup that really it's like it's almost like making you look at something over here while while you're actually watching a relationship grow. Yeah, that that's going to really affect you at the end. And then, you know, from, you know, finding out that it was a British director was also fascinating for me. I was yeah, kind of yeah, like, I that, yeah. despite the fact that he's like, you know, a gay Jewish guy from Tottenham or wherever, North London somewhere, I think mm. he was originally from. Um, there's such a, that's such a world apart from what I am. But you start to realize as a young person that you do have really similar thoughts and really similar opinions to people who you're completely disconnected from, you know? Um, but I suppose, it spe- I suppose in a way it speaks to, I mean, there's a universal truth to being new in town, isn't there? And being yeah, lost. Course, I mean, yeah. that's something we can, you don't have to have even done it. You can relate to it because those that don't do it are fearful of it happening. And those that have experienced it know exactly what it is when they see it. Yeah. But I think like, I'm a, you know, I'm a small country boy. So I think that maybe growing up, you don't realise that uh, people have the same mindset, if you'll excuse the pun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. As, as, you know, you, you, I think I was get, I was just at that age where I was very impressionable. And it's mm. kind of like when you realise that there's someone at the, the far side of the world who's thinking the same way as you are, you're kind of like, fucking hell, man, this is amazing. But that's, that's isn't what, that the beauty of sort of finding stuff is that you, it's like almost like you watch it and you go, you can almost be sensing, like, this was made for me, wasn't it? I'm sure. Yeah. You know, this is a mass media, but you're able to consume it on such a personal level. That's right. That you kind of go, this is talking, this is talking to me, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, and this is like the beauty of cinema, isn't it? Yeah. It talks directly at us sometimes. Mm. Um, And, you know, to, to go back to that period of time where I was so impressionable that, you know, that those things just became a pure obsession. You know, I'm still obsessed by film, but, it, you know, you've got a much more critical eye as you get older and you mm. start to, you know, you start to realise various other things. So it's very difficult. And I think that, I mean, I often say this, most people's favourite film will be a film that they saw in their most formative years, like between 14 and 18. Probably, mm. you know? So, and that's, the, that's exactly the same for me because those, those two films are just... It's, the it's essentially the whole premise of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> It's the idea, it's <laughs> exactly. the idea that, that the memories that we forge in film are when we're, we're sort of most susceptible to it. 
Yeah, well, I'm really glad I'm delivering in such a, a, a promising manner then for you. No, 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 it's perfect. No, because I think I think that's because that's that's what that's part of what it is. Because I think if we just said what she, what, I mean, sometimes it can be a Venn diagram of the film that had a lasting impact on me is also my favourite film. But sometimes it, films that have an impact on you when you when you're younger aren't necessarily going to stay with you as your favourite films. But they doesn't make make their impact any less. Yeah, you know. I think uh, somebody once, I can't remember who it was, but somebody once said to me, I'm not going to ask you what your favourite film is, Mikey, as a filmmaker. I'm going to ask you what film, if you could put your name on it as director, would you choose? Oh, wow. And what did you say? Right? I said Midnight Cowboy. Oh, wow. So Taxi Driver is my favourite film, but if I could put my directorial name on any film, it would be Midnight Cowboy. And I think, I think the difference is because... In terms of its construction and the 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 manner of the characterizations and and the comedy through it, mm. I think that that's what I kind of really aspire to more than. Yeah, well, I, th I think I mean it was very much that kind of late sixties, early seventies thing because you look at something like seventy one Harold and Maud, yeah, which has got which, some. Which, by the way, was nearly one of my. Themes. I'm sure it was because it's, <laughs> it's it speaks to the same thing where it has the absolute absurdist yeah. humour, but yeah. then it delivers a gut punch of sort of real sadness and 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 about love you know it's 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 not pulling any punches at all yeah um, having having a pool held and mod out of my three was somewhat difficult <laughs> well look i'm glad you did because that means we can we can skip a, a a decade or two to a film i've never i've never been able to talk about before so i'm excited about this it's a long time since i've seen it um but your third choice is uh that was me being segway man um there's uh is, is, is thomas vinterberg's Festum from 1998. Do you want to talk about how, how you come across that film and what, and what made that such a fond film memory for you? When I was at uni, uh, we did a lot of study about the dogma movement. Mm -hmm. um, I went to uni from 97 to 2001. Uh, so we'd seen, like, me and my mates who were on the course there, and the, the, it was talked about on the course was the dogma movement. And, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, as a young aspiring filmmaker at that point, I, I'd firmly realized by this point in my life that I was going down the route of being a filmmaker, not an actor. So um, a film like Festin is hugely inspirational because it's shot in such a veritable cheap way uh, and yet has like a like a a story that's that smacks you around the head, you know? It's, Just a little bit. Yeah. So and I'm like this is this is plausible. It's possible to make a film like this. Um, and, you know, it took me a long time to get there, but I got back to it and finally made my film in a similar way, you know, so because I was fed up trying to make it on the, the bigger budget and uh, getting nowhere with it. So that film really inspired me. And one of the great things about my story with Festin is that a couple of years later, I, I won a scholarship to go to UCLA and study directing and screenwriting. Right. Uh, at MA, that was my MA. Um, and I got a chance to meet Thomas Vinterberg. Oh, which wow. Was, which was cool because he was in the middle of cutting one of his films in LA at the time. Uh, I can't remember which one. It's the one with uh, Joaquin Phoenix in it, I think. I can't remember what it's called. But he was recutting that because he wasn't happy with the cut of it. Um, so... UCLA had managed to get him in to do a talk. Um, and it was kind of like hardly any students showed up to it because not like very few of them knew who he was, you know, which oh my which word. was kind of crazy. So I went into this room 
Because my directing tutor actually, he told me, he said, Thomas Winterburn's coming in to do a talk. It's for, it's actually for the acting school, but I'm going to go because do you want to come with me? And I was like, yeah, totally. Because he knew, I'd already spoke to him about Festin. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I had no idea what Thomas Winterburn looked like or anything like that. So it was quite funny. I was sitting waiting to go into the room and these two Danish guys show up. Um, and one of them said, could you tell me where room such and such is? <laughs> And I was like, this is them, right? So I'm sitting there and I says to the older guy, are you Thomas Winterberg? And this young guy, this tall young guy standing behind said, no, I'm Thomas Winterberg. Why would you think he was Thomas Winterberg? <laughs> and I was just like, because I've seen your films, man. I just thought that you'd be some older guy that, you know, <laughs> get, given the maturity that's shown in your films, I just thought that you'd be older. And he said, well, I'm not that young, but... <laughs> But he was quite young, so I was just kind of taken aback and shocked by how yeah, yeah, yeah. young and good-looking he was. And So anyway, I went into this room, and he proceeds to give this talk to 10, 12 students, which blew my mind about screenwriting and the way that he writes stories and the fact that he pulls all the exposition out um, and that he, um, he talks specifically about how he lets his story develop. And he says, you know, what I do is I just put characters on screen. I think about it. I put characters on screen and a little little cracks begin to appear in their personality where we begin to find out who they really are. And that's the way that I work. And I was just like, I'm sold. That is basically what I want to do. I mean, that's um, the magic of screenwriting, isn't it? If you, yeah. can, if you can present somebody who's something and by the end of the film, they're not that. And you've yeah. been you've been pulled through the the ringer to get that. Yeah. So and and like the reason I chose this film is because it's so it had such a sort of meaningful impact on me the film and then then to meet the filmmaker personally and for him to explain to me how he wrote his story and why I was just like shit this guy knows what he's about and I, I want to make films like that. I mean, one of the big things about Festin is obviously the the big the big meltdown at the end where we where the family secret is out. Did he talk Did he talk at all about how he wrote? Did he write to that, or was that did that evolve from his cracks emerging? Because thinking about what you said earlier about your own writing style, about the idea of knowing what you're writing to, it would make sense that Festin would come out of knowing yeah, what that, you're writing to. So I don't remember specifically him talking about theme and stuff, but I, I started to find I started to figure that out for myself, you know, because yeah. obviously I then became a student of film, a student of screenwriting. I started to get really serious about screenwriting after that discussion with yeah. him, uh, because I I just had thought I'm going to be a director, but I've since become a screenwriter who, uh, when I'm writing, I I have the mind of a producer when I'm writing now rather mm. than the director. So I'm, I'm working from theme, but I'm also working from, uh, is this feasible? And I try and I try and push the director out of my head while I'm screenwriting because I think it's it can get you in all sorts of a pickle if you're. I mean, I've, I mean, for me, the memory for me is that I saw Festin at, um, at the Corner House in Manchester, which was like the Arts House Cinema the, in the city centre, which has been replaced now by the Mega Complex Home Cinema, which is this wonderful yeah. sort of institution not just the building um but and because i wasn't really i wasn't pursuing film at the time so the whole dogma thing passed me by it just i just got to watch it as the brilliant drama that it was i wasn't seeing the style as any i mean i saw the idiots as well around this that would have been around the same time wasn't it? not long after 
yeah. around the same time from Lars von Trier, which is obviously another one of the school dogmas. So I was familiar with the term, but it it wasn't affecting me. Like now I look at it, I can see the aesthetic, de- you know, clear as day. But then it was just like this amazing film. Yeah, and it's shot on a camcorder. Mm. It's like the thing that makes Beston so good is that it, like, for people who watch it who are interested in film, it 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 sort of encourages them that you can shoot your film with any old piece of shit as long as the story is good. Exactly. You know? No, this is and true. Like, and I've always believed that. I mean, I, I've got students kind of come to me on open days where I work and they're kind of like, what kit have you got? You got an Alexa? And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, you only need your mobile phone, mm. to be honest. Like, so uh, for now, you're only going to need your mobile phone. Indeed. Uh, once, once you get your once you get your scripts all polished and stuff. Um, but that, I mean, that's the thing. Story is everything for me. And I'm, you know, hopefully that, that people will see that in my first feature when they get a chance to watch it. Brilliant. Well, look, well, thank you for sharing Taxi Driver, Midnight Cowboy and Festin, yeah. the three films that impacted everything in adult life. And thank you for talking us around how uh, Mindset came about. And it just gives me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Cheers, man. It's been a pleasure. Yeah.